0: Decision podcasts by the New York Prosecutors Training Institute are made possible by Voice Pods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at Nipt Law. www.nypti.org People v. Yocelyn Ortega, decided November 20, 2023. Singers J. At issue in this case is whether the admission of two autopsy reports through an expert witness who did not perform the autopsies, as well as that witness's testimony, violated defendant's Sixth Amendment right to confrontation, where defendant had not been given a prior opportunity to cross-examine the performing medical examiner. We hold that the admission of those reports and the expert witness's testimony violated defendant's constitutional right to confrontation, but conclude that the error was nevertheless harmless. 1. In October 2012, defendant Yaselin Ortega was employed as a nanny by a family living in Manhattan and entrusted with the care of three young children. On October 25, 2012, defendant brought two of those children, aged 2 and 6, into a bathroom of their Upper West Side home where she repeatedly stabbed them, thereby killing them. Defendant was charged with two counts of murder in the first degree and two counts of murder in the second degree. During defendant's 2018 trial, she conceded that she had killed the two children, but asserted a defense of not guilty by reason of insanity. See Penal Law Section 40.15. The autopsy reports of the two victims were admitted into evidence at trial through the people's witness, Dr. Susan Ely of the New York City Office of Chief Medical Examiner (OCME). Dr. Ely did not perform either autopsy, nor was she present when the autopsies were conducted. Still. After a review of the autopsy reports, dictation tapes, and autopsy photographs, Dr. Ely testified to the number, type, and pattern of the victim's wounds, as well as to the cause and manner of death of each child. The autopsies were performed, and the reports created, by Dr. James A. Hayes of OCME. It is undisputed that defendant lacked the prior opportunity to cross-examine Dr. Hayes regarding these reports. Though the entirety of each report was available to the jury. The jury only viewed seven diagrams of the decedent's bodies. These diagrams were displayed during Dr. Ely's testimony. Three of the diagrams depicted the outline of a generic human body, with indications of where the victims sustained stab wounds. The other diagrams narrowed in on the victims' necks and the six year old victims' hands. On each diagram, Dr. Hayes had drawn the location of the victim's wounds and annotated these markings with descriptions of the size, location, and type of the respective wound. During jury deliberations, the jury requested to inspect the diagrams of the six-year-old victim's body. The jury did not request to view any other material from the autopsy reports. Defendant objected to the admission of each autopsy report and Dr. Ely's testimony on the ground that they violated her constitutional right to confront the individual that conducted the autopsies. Supreme Court overruled defendant's objections. The jury ultimately found defendant guilty of two counts of murder in the first degree and two counts of murder in the second degree the appellate division dismissed the two counts of murder in the second degree as inclusory concurrent counts of the first-degree murder counts and otherwise affirmed the judgment. The court agreed with Supreme Court that the admission of the autopsy reports through Dr. Ely did not violate defendant's right to confrontation, concluding that the reports were not testimonial because they did not link the commission of the crime to a particular person, quoting People v. John, and citing People v. Fraganet. Regardless, The court determined that any error was harmless under the standards for constitutional error, citing People v. Crimmins. A judge of this court granted defendant leave to appeal. 2. A. The Sixth Amendment of the Federal Constitution provides that in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to be confronted with the witnesses against them. Pursuant to this confrontation clause, a witness's out-of-court testimonial statement may only be admitted for its truth where the witness appears at trial or, if the witness is unavailable for trial, where the defendant has had a prior opportunity to cross-examine that witness, Crawford v. Washington. In Crawford, the United States Supreme Court defined testimony as a solemn declaration or affirmation made for the purpose of establishing or proving some fact. The court provided several examples of the core class of testimonial statements but acknowledged that various formulations. These formulations include, as relevant here, statements that were made under circumstances which would lead an objective witness reasonably to believe that the statement would be available for use at a later trial. This court had occasion to consider the impact of Crawford and its progeny on the admission of autopsy reports in Fraconette, where it held that a redacted autopsy report was not testimonial for purposes of the Confrontation Clause. In reaching this conclusion, the court evaluated four purported indicia of testimoniality, 1. The extent to which the entity conducting the procedure is an arm of law enforcement, 2 whether the contents of the report are a contemporaneous record of objective facts, 3, whether a pro-law enforcement bias is likely to influence the contents of the report, and, 4, whether the report's contents are directly accusatory in the sense that they explicitly link the defendant to the crime. All four factors, the court concluded, weighed in the people's favor and thus, the autopsy report at issue was not testimonial though the United States Supreme Court has never considered the testimonial nature of autopsy reports the court did address the testimonial nature of forensic reports in a trilogy of cases that inform our analysis here shortly after fray connett the supreme court decided melendez Dias v massachusetts in which the court brought forensic reports directly within the ambit of the confrontation clause in that case The court considered whether sworn certificates of analysis were testimonial where the certificates concluded that a substance recovered from the petitioner was cocaine and further established the weight of that substance. The court held that the certificates were testimonial because they were affidavits a solemn declaration or affirmation made for the purpose of establishing or proving some fact and the affidavits were made under circumstances which would lead an objective witness reasonably to believe that the statement would be available for use at a later trial quoting Crawford. In fact, the court stated, under Massachusetts law the sole purpose of the affidavits was to provide prima facie evidence of the composition, quality, and the net weight of the analyzed substance. Further, the certificates were functionally identical to live-in court testimony, doing precisely what a witness does on direct examination, quoting Davis v. Washington. As such, the affidavits were testimonial statements, and the analysts were witnesses within the meaning of the confrontation clause. Absent a showing that the analysts were unavailable to testify at trial and that petitioner had a prior opportunity to cross-examine them, petitioner was entitled to be confronted with the analyst at trial, quoting Crawford, The Supreme Court emphasized that forensic evidence is not uniquely immune from the risk of manipulation, particularly by law enforcement, nor is it insulated from the possibility of incompetence. The court observed that there is wide variability across forensic science disciplines with regard to techniques, methodologies, reliability, types and numbers of potential errors, research, general acceptability, and published material. These issues might be explored on cross-examination and there is little reason to believe that confrontation will be useless in testing analysts' honesty, proficiency, and methodology. Two years later in Bullcoming v. New Mexico, the Supreme Court held that an unsworn forensic laboratory report certifying that a sample of the defendant's blood had an alcohol concentration above the legal limit was testimonial. The report was materially similar to that in Melinda Diaz. Law enforcement had provided the sample to a state laboratory required by law to assist in police investigations, and the report was sufficiently formalized. Thus, as in Melinda Diaz. The certificate concerning the testing results was made for the purpose of establishing or proving some fact in a criminal proceeding. The report was introduced into evidence through an analyst who did not perform or observe the gas chromatograph test on the defendant's blood sample. This surrogate testimony, the court concluded, did not meet the constitutional requirement. The court rejected the characterization of the performing analyst as a mere scrivener of results generated by the gas chromatograph machine because the analyst's statements in the report related to past events and human actions not revealed in raw, machine-produced data. The testifying witness could not convey what particular test and testing process was employed, nor expose any lapses or lies on the testing analyst's part. Additionally, The testifying witness did not offer any independent opinion concerning the defendant's blood alcohol concentration. In a fractured opinion one year after Bullcoming, the Supreme Court held that an expert witness's testimony regarding a DNA profile developed from semen found on a rape victim's vaginal swabs did not violate the confrontation clause, even though the witness did not perform the DNA testing or construct the DNA profile. Williams v. Illinois. The plurality offered two bases for its holding. First, the plurality asserted that the DNA profile was not offered for the truth of the matter asserted and thus, was not a testimonial statement. Alternatively, the plurality determined that the DNA report was not testimonial because the report was created before a suspect was identified, the report's primary purpose was not to obtain evidence to be used against petitioner but to assist in finding a rapist who was on the loose, and the DNA profile itself was not inherently inculpatory. Justice Thomas, in a concurrence, disagreed with both rationales of the plurality but would have held that the DNA report was not testimonial because it lacked the solemnity of an affidavit or deposition, Thomas, J., concurring. Therefore, while five justices agreed that the DNA report was not testimonial, no rationale garnered a majority vote and Williams accordingly offers little guidance to our analysis, see Marks v. United States. Other federal courts have considered the testimonial nature of autopsy reports, see for example United States v. Ignasiak, Nardi v. Pepe, United States v. Williams. Of particular relevance here is the Second Circuit's opinion in Garlic v. Lee. On a petition for writ of habeas corpus, the court rejected a First Department decision that deemed an autopsy report non-testimonial in reliance on Freconet and determined that the autopsy report was testimonial. In that case, the autopsy was performed in aid of an active police investigation and the circumstances under which the autopsy report was created would lead any objective witness to believe that the report would be available for use at a later trial, quoting Crawford. Further, the court deemed the report a solemn declaration or affirmation made for the purposes of establishing or proving some fact, quoting Crawford. Applying Clearly Established Supreme Court Precedent the Second Circuit rejected this court's rationale in Frakenet. We agree that Frakenet's four-part framework for determining the testimonial nature of evidence does not survive Melendez-Diaz and Bull Cumming. First, the Supreme Court and Melendez-Diaz made explicit that a statement need not be inherently inculpatory or directly accuse a defendant of wrongdoing to be considered testimonial, Melendez-Diaz. To the extent that the Williams plurality sought to establish such a litmus test for out-of-court statements, five justices expressly rejected that approach, See Williams, Thomas, J., concurring, Kagan, J., descending. Fraconette's consideration of whether the contents of the report are a contemporaneous record of objective facts also fails under Supreme Court scrutiny that a forensic report records near contemporaneous observations of the test or procedure does not shield it from the confrontation clause's protections, Melendez Diaz. Finally, the two factors of Fragonette that consider the witnesses' independence from law enforcement and their susceptibility to a pro-law enforcement bias must similarly fall, see Freganet. The Melendez Diaz Court specifically rejected the argument that statements prone to distortion or manipulation and those that are the result of neutral, scientific testing should be treated any differently for purposes of the Sixth Amendment. The reliability of an out of court statement has no effect on the testimonial nature of that statement, for the Confrontation Clause commands not that evidence be reliable, but that reliability be assessed in a particular manner, by testing in the crucible of cross examination. Quoting Crawford, the Supreme Court again rejected this argument in Bullcoming, where the respondent asserted that the analyst's statements were simply observations of an independent scientist made according to a non-adversarial public duty. Bullcoming, that argument fares no better here than it did in Melendez D. Oz. The performing analyst must be made available for confrontation, even if they possess the scientific acumen of Madame Curie and the veracity of Mother Teresa. Quoting Melinda S. D. Oz, we now hold that fraconet should no longer be followed because it is inconsistent with the demands of the confrontation clauses articulated more recently by the Supreme Court. B. Turning now to the autopsy reports at issue here, we hold that the reports are testimonial under established Supreme Court precedent. The reports are solemn declarations or affirmations made for the purpose of establishing or proving some fact. Crawford, namely the homicidal nature of these victims' deaths. Further, the reports contain indicia of formality that render them solemn declarations or affirmations, Crawford. Both reports, labeled with the formal title of report of autopsy, bear the official CME seal. Both reports include a signed and dated certification that Dr. Hayes performed the autopsies. Specifically, the certification as it pertains to the autopsy performed on the six-year-old victim, reads, I hereby certify that I, John A. Hayes, M.D., City Medical Examiner, 2, have performed an autopsy on the body of the six-year-old victim, on the 26th day of October, 2012, commencing at 8.30 a.m., in the Manhattan Mortuary of the Office of Chief Medical Examiner of the City of New York. This autopsy was performed in the presence of Dr. Graham, Stahlhertz and Vincent. The certification for the two-year-old victim's autopsy is functionally identical. Finally, the results of each autopsy were formalized on an introductory page bearing the name of the performing examiner, the date on which the autopsies were conducted, and the ME case number. The reports were also created under circumstances which would lead an objective witness reasonably to believe that the statements would be available for use at a later trial. The tragic condition of the bodies alone was indication enough to Dr. Hayes that these autopsy reports would have been available one day for use in a criminal prosecution. Additionally, the autopsy reports do not merely state the location and size of wounds, instead, they repeatedly mention that the children were killed and that they were killed by defendant. The autopsy report of the six-year-old victim contained a supplemental case information page which provided that the deceased died as a result of injuries caused by multiple stab wounds inflicted by the nanny of the children. The autopsy report for the two-year-old victim also contained a supplemental case information page which stated that the victim died as a result of injuries caused by three stab wounds inflicted to the neck of the decedent by the nanny of the children. Both reports acknowledged an open investigation and noted the name of the assigned New York Police Department detective. The reports further stated that, according to the assigned detective, the exact circumstances of how or why the decedents were stabbed by the live in nanny were unclear at the time of the autopsies. Moreover, OCME was required by law to deliver all records pertaining to these deaths to the New York County District Attorney's office because there was an indication of criminality. Dr. Hayes, aware of his legal obligation to report his findings to the district attorney, should have reasonably believed that these reports that he created could be used in a criminal prosecution. Because these autopsy reports are testimonial and defendant was not given the opportunity to cross-examine the performing medical examiner, the admission of the reports through an examiner who had not performed the autopsies and did not create these reports violated defendant's Sixth Amendment right of confrontation while some autopsies conducted under different circumstances may produce reports that do not rise to the level of testimoniality, that is simply not the case here. C. it is clear that we may not disregard, the confrontation clause, at our convenience, Melinda's Diaz, even where it has the effect of allowing the guilty to go free, Davis v. Washington. It is also the case, however, that the confrontation clause does not entirely preclude the use of information contained in testimonial autopsy reports. The Supreme Court suggested an independent analysis standard in Bullcoming, nor did the state assert that the testifying analyst had any independent opinion concerning Bullcoming's BAC. More recently, this court in People v. John, holding that a DNA report was testimonial, explicitly delineated the circumstances in which expert analysts could testify any analyst who witnessed performed or supervised the generation of a defendant's dna profile or who used his or her independent analysis on the raw data could testify in satisfaction of the confrontation clause of course autopsies and dna testing are hardly neat forensic parallels dna testing relies on computer generated information whereas autopsies involve Almost exclusively, the skill, methodology, and judgment of highly trained examiners without the aid of computer software. Ignosiak DNA testing may be repeated until the sample has been expended. Autopsies necessarily carry a certitude of finality. Once a body has undergone an invasive examination and been returned to loved ones, there is rarely an opportunity to do any confirmatory examination. Though there are these critical differences between DNA testing and autopsies, we find it appropriate to look to John to inform the standard here. Importing that approach, we hold that an expert medical examiner may offer conclusions as to the cause and manner of death, and surrounding circumstances, where that testifying expert performed, supervised, or observed the autopsy or used their independent analysis on the primary data, see State v. Navaret. Under New York's evidentiary rules, a testifying expert may rely on inadmissible hearsay material if it is of a kind accepted in the profession as reliable in forming a professional opinion. People v Goldstein, quoting People v Sugden, so long as there is evidence establishing the reliability of the out-of-court material. Hamp v New York City T.R. Auth. While evidentiary rules would permit an expansive foundation for expert testimony from medical examiners. The more difficult question is which of these materials a testifying expert may rely upon to meet the demands of the confrontation clause. Autopsy files contain a variety of materials, such as autopsy reports, diagrams, photographs, dictation tapes, microscopic slides, crime scene evidence, and more, which are materials frequently relied upon by testifying medical examiners, see Commonwealth v. Rivas. See also Modavi V State, Commonwealth V. Brown, State V Base, State V Joseph, 230 eras, State V. Kennedy. Autopsy photographs and video recordings of a conducted autopsy may properly be relied upon by a testifying witness reaching their own independent conclusions. Further, standard anatomical measurements devoid of the subjective skill and judgment of the performing examiner constitute primary data upon which an expert may rely. Here we cannot be certain that any of Dr. Ely's conclusions were based on her independent review of primary data because such evidence was not elicited by the people. At times during her testimony, Dr. Ely appeared to be reading from the displayed diagrams or the autopsy reports themselves. Indeed, Dr. Ely provided details and language that was entirely identical to that in Dr. Hayes's reports. At other times, however, Dr. Ely offered what appeared to be independent conclusions. Specifically, two pieces of Dr. Ely's testimony do not appear in the autopsy reports and thus, at first glance, seem to be her conclusions alone, that the six-year-old victim struggled against the attacker and that there was a reasonable possibility that the perpetrator stood behind the two-year-old victim when the major neck wound was inflicted. But the people failed to elicit testimony which would allow us to definitively say on which materials within the autopsy files Dr. Ely based these conclusions. Dr. Ely testified that the pattern of the wounds, the number of wounds, the placement of the wounds on the six-year-old victim's hands, and the gaping nature of certain wounds on the victim's torso led her to conclude that the victim was conscious and fighting against the attacker during the incident. We are unable to discern whether Dr. Ely based this conclusion on Dr. Hayes's various conclusions such as his characterizations of some stab wounds as gaping in the grouping and orientation of the varying wounds or on an independent analysis of permissible primary data such as the photograph's subjective depiction of the wounds and their patterning as to the second conclusion dr ely based her finding on the fact that the two-year-old's neck wound was deeper on one side than the other again It is unclear from the record whether she impermissibly based this testimony on Dr. Hayes's conclusion that the stab wounds on the right side of the neck were superficial while the wound on the left side of the neck was gaping and deeper than the right side or on the primary data. Nearly all of Dr. Ely's testimony was the type of surrogate testimony rejected by the Supreme Court in Bullcoming, in that Dr. Ely simply parroted the autopsy reports, see John we do not suggest that agreement between the testifying expert and the performing examiner is itself impermissible. Rather, it is the people's obligation to establish that their testifying experts, who did not perform or observe the relevant autopsy, reached their conclusions themselves based upon a review of the proper materials rather than the conclusions of the performing examiner. Where the people failed to do so, we cannot be sure that a defendant's Sixth Amendment right has been safeguarded. As for the rest of Dr. Ely's testimony, we simply cannot tell whether it reflected her own deliberate, interpretative work product based on the primary data. We thus conclude that all of Dr. Ely's testimony was improper under the Sixth Amendment. 3. Though defendant's constitutional right to confrontation was violated by the admission of the autopsy reports and Dr. Ely's testimony, that error was harmless beyond a reasonable doubt and does not mandate reversal. Under the harmless error standard, this court must first consider whether the evidence of a defendant's guilt is overwhelming, see People v. Myrena. If the proof was overwhelming, we must then consider whether there is a reasonable possibility that the error might have contributed to defendant's conviction, quoting Crimmins. Because defendant did not dispute that she caused the death of the victims but raised a defense of not guilty by reason of insanity, the harmless error analysis must be conducted accordingly see for example Goldstein, People v. Mar, see also Ortega, nothing in the autopsy report had any bearing on defendant's defenses of insanity and lack of intent. Here, we agree with the appellate division that the evidence of defendant's guilt was overwhelming and the error in admitting the autopsy reports and allowing Dr. Ely's improper testimony did not contribute to defendant's conviction defendant argues that the testimony regarding the six-year-old victim's self-defense likely impacted the jury's view of the insanity defense. We disagree. The children's reactions to defendant's attack and whether they defended themselves are entirely unrelated to whether defendant lacked substantial capacity to know or appreciate the nature and consequences of her actions, see Penal Law Section 40.15, In sum. The autopsy reports and Dr. Ely's testimony had little to no bearing on defendants' insanity defense. We have reviewed defendants' remaining contentions and conclude that they do not provide grounds for reversal. Accordingly, the order of the appellate division should be affirmed. Order affirmed. Opinion by Judge Sangas. Chief Judge Wilson and Judges Rivera, Garcia, Canataro, Troutman and Duffy concur. Judge Halligan took no part. Decided November 20, 2023. Decision podcasts by the New York Prosecutors Training Institute are made possible by Voice Pods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at Nipt Law. www.nypti.org slash law.